You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6. Our text for this morning is Luke 6, verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. We're continuing on in our series, From the Manger to the Throne, and we're just picking up where we left off last week. Today we come to these verses in Luke's gospel, and church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word, and I want to invite you to follow along as I read it. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. May God bless the preaching of his word. Church, today we come to the final two stories in this grouping of five opposition stories involving the Pharisees and Jesus. If you recall now, we've had five groupings of stories in which in all of these five stories, the Pharisees have opposed Jesus. Back in chapter 5, verse 21, we came upon the first opposition story. If you recall, the Pharisees accused Jesus of 
blasphemy when he told the paralytic, not just that he was healed, but that his sins were forgiven. Then the Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of associating with the wrong kind of people back in chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 30. And they accused Jesus of hanging around the wrong kind of people because Jesus and his disciples were eating with tax collectors and sinners. And their accusation was, Jesus, you and your disciples are not holy and pure. Then in chapter 5, verse 33, we come across the third accusation. In this one, they accuse the disciples of Jesus of failing to make the right kind of action in keeping with repentance. Now, why would they say this? Because if Jesus' disciples were repentant as Jesus claimed they were, then why aren't they fasting and praying Instead, they're feasting with Jesus. And then here in chapter 6, verse 2, the Pharisees accuse the disciples of breaking the fourth commandment because they had eaten some grain as they were walking through a field on the Sabbath. And then, final of the five things, On another Sabbath, they watch to see if Jesus will heal a man with a withered hand. Because if he does, then they can accuse him, not just his disciples, of breaking the fourth commandment. Now here's the question I want to reflect on this morning. Why did they do this? Why did the Pharisees see all of this, hear all of this? And continue to oppose Jesus. Since we've come to the end of this grouping of five opposition stories involving the Pharisees, I think it would be good and wise to consider why the Pharisees opposed Jesus the way they did. I actually believe the text gives us warrant for why we ought to focus on the Pharisees as some of the primary as the primary antagonist in this narrative. If you remember back to your English class, there in a story the main character is the protagonist and often you better understand the protagonist by understanding the antagonist. Well, if Jesus is the protagonist in this story, the Pharisees are some of the primary antagonists. And I think Luke actually wants us to learn from the Pharisees. He wants us to learn from them. Why? Because Jesus actually warned his disciples about allowing the leaven of the Pharisees to take root in them. Listen to what Jesus will say later on in Luke chapter 12 verse 1. It says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. And he began to say to his, to his disciples first, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
So later on, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, be aware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Now, if he tells his disciples that, what does that mean? They're not exempt. And what does he say? The hypocrisy of the Pharisees is like leaven, just a little bit affects everything. So I believe Luke has structured the narrative in a way for us to learn from the Pharisees. Why do I say he structured this narrative this way? Well, once again, since chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through chapter 6, verse 11, Luke has put five opposition stories together. It's, It's important for us to remember Though the Gospels were written with historical accuracy, each writer is putting things together in a way to make the points they're making. And Luke's not putting everything in sequential order. This is one of those sections where Luke's putting things in thematic order. He puts these five stories where Jesus is being opposed together. And we're supposed to see that. And then if you remember back to last week, in chapter 5, verses 27 through 39, we discovered what makes a disciple of Jesus. Remember, we asked that question and we learned from that passage, a disciple of Jesus is one who's repented of their sins. And we learned from last week's passage, the way in which the disciples respond to Jesus as those who've repented isn't one of somberness, it's one of celebration. Well, if last week we learned about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, I think it's good for us to reflect on what is an anti-disciple. If the Pharisees are the antagonist to Jesus, they're also the anti-disciple. And we can learn from them. But I think the primary reason, I think we should read this passage with our eyes focused on what are the Pharisees doing, goes back to the last verse from last Sunday. Look at verse 39 of chapter 5. After Jesus tells us, uses this metaphor of you can't mix the new with the old, and he uses a new cloth and an old cloth, new wine being poured into old wine and an old wineskin, he ends with this statement. No one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says the old is good. I don't think Jesus is referring exclusively to the Pharisees, but he is referring to the Pharisees. So he just makes this comment, and now we read chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. The Pharisees are a great example of what Jesus just said. Though I'm bringing something new, they love the old. And lastly, I think we're to read this story with our eyes on the Pharisees because in this very passage, we see the Pharisees reject Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath and they reject the law of the Lord. And that's our outline for this morning. If you're taking notes, verses 1 through 5, we see the rejecting, rejecting the Lord of the Sabbath. And then verses 6 through 11, rejecting the law of Lord. Now what I want us to do is go back through each of these sections. I want to point out the theological truth being revealed, and then I want us to reflect on this question at the end. What fueled the fury of the Pharisees? 
That's actually the title of this morning's message, The Fury of the Pharisees. What fueled their hatred and disdain for Jesus? Let's go back now and look at verses 1 through 5 in this picture of the Pharisees rejecting the Lord of the Sabbath. And the first thing I want to point out is the fact that both of these stories that Luke records here in verses 1 through 5 and then 6 through 11, they they took place on the Sabbath. And to me, that's Luke's brilliant way of ending these five groupings of, of opposition. Because out of all the things that Jesus could get wrong, to get it wrong on the Sabbath, about the Sabbath, just intensifies and turns up the volume. It ups the ante that now these two stories end on the Sabbath day. And the final story of these five stories not only takes place on the Sabbath day, it takes place in the synagogue of all places. This is the grand finale of Jesus is going to just get them more upset than they've ever been, he's going to get it wrong in their opinion, not just on the Lord's day, but in the synagogue. And they can't stand it. Now, why is this? Well, the Pharisees were serious about the Sabbath. Therefore, they they followed very strict rules regarding the Sabbath. Not rules God had set aside, rules established by rabbis and tradition. You can think of these rules as guidelines, best practices. And the reason they followed these rules was to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy as the fourth commandment required. Here's the problem with their best practices. These rules were confused with the law of God. And therefore, if you didn't keep with these best practices, according to the Pharisees, you had sinned. Though God hadn't commanded you to do these things, according to their best practices manual that they wanted to hand out, if you didn't do these things, you have broken the law of God, and that's exactly what they accuse the disciples of Jesus from doing of doing is breaking the fourth commandment. Look back at verses one through two again. It says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? According to the Pharisees' understanding of the law of Moses, what the disciples did when they were walking through, passing by from one place to the next place, and they passed through this field, they grabbed some grain, they run it in their hands, and they begin to eat because they're hungry. They considered that work. And if they worked on the Sabbath, they violated the fourth commandment. And so Jesus is now being confronted and his disciples are being confronted about their behavior. And notice how Jesus responds to these accusations in verses 3 and 4. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? 
he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and eat, ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with them. Now, the first thing I want to point out, I don't want us to miss because I think there's something so significant here. The first thing that we must see is Jesus defending his disciples' actions. I love what the Puritan Matthew Henry wrote about this situation and Jesus defending his disciples. He said this in his commentary, Jesus Christ will justify his disciples when they are unjustly censured. And he will own and accept them in many a thing in which men tell them is not lawful for them to do. And then he says this, How well is it for us that men are not to be our judges and that Christ will be our advocate. Isn't that a good reminder this morning? That Jesus Christ, not men, is our judge. And here's the best news of all. He is also our advocate. And he advocates for his disciples who are being wrongly accused of sin. And notice the way in which Jesus defends the, the, the action of the disciples. This is important for us to, to catch. He doesn't argue with the Pharisees about their interpretation of the law. Did you notice that? I mean, Jesus could have done that and, and, and put them in their place. Nobody would have known the law and the interpretation of the law and the understanding of Moses better than Jesus. And he doesn't go there. He doesn't argue with them about their interpretation of the law. Nor, catch this, nor does he ignore the Old Testament law as if it was irrelevant. He doesn't say, don't you know I'm doing something new? That old covenant, old stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm fulfilling it all. We're moving on. Not what he says. Instead, he asked the Pharisees this question. Have you ever read in the scriptures the story about David and his men when they went in hungry and ate of the bread of the presence which God commanded in the law? No exceptions. Commanded in the law, only the priest was to eat. David ate it, gave it to his men, and God doesn't say, that's wrong. And that's the illustration Jesus used. And he asked the Pharisees, have you read this? Well, the obvious answer is, of course they had. They knew the story. So why does Jesus bring it up? For several reasons. One, notice what Jesus just did. He took them back to Scripture. Remember what the Pharisees are doing here. They're accusing Jesus' disciples of sin based on their tradition, not on Scripture. And so Jesus wants to say, hey, let's talk about sin. Let's have a conversation about sin. Let's go back to the Bible. What is sin? What is sinful? I know you have your list of rules. They obviously broke it. But what does the Bible command? What does the Bible say? But Jesus is doing more than just taking them back to Scripture. He appeals to the Pharisees 
that whatever they think the law of Moses demanded, there were exceptions based on higher priorities. David is an example. What do you do with the story? God said, no one is to eat of the bread of presence. And yet David ate of it and gave it to his men. And Jesus says, you want to know why my Pharisees did that? Or why my disciples did that? Just read 1 Samuel 21. Now, time does not permit for us to read the account of David and his men eating the bread of presence in 1 Samuel 21. Neither do we have time to discuss the law of Moses and the requirements of the law spelled out in Deuteronomy 23. But we don't need to do that because Jesus actually overrides that whole discussion by making the point that he does. Notice what he does now in verse 5. And he said to them. Now this is why he just quoted from David. Not just taking him back to scripture. Here's why he uses David as an example. The son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, in the same way that David's position in Israel, don't forget what David's position was. He was the spirit-anointed leader. A lowercase messiah. He's God's chosen. We're told that he's spirit-anointed. That's what the word Messiah means, anointed. That's where the word Christ comes from in the Greek. David, at this time, was the spirit-anointed ruler. And David's position allowed him to set aside the law's demand for the sake of the kingdom. David wasn't doing it because he disregarded the law of God or because he thought he, he was special and had an exception. In this particular case... The kingdom had a greater priority than what the law demanded. And how much more so should Jesus determine what is lawful on the Sabbath if he's Lord of the Sabbath? You get the point Jesus was making? He says, okay, let's think about David for a minute. If David did that and he was but a man, but because of his position, he could do something that was not what the law commanded. How much more so if I'm not a man, I'm actually the Lord of the Sabbath. How much can I determine what the Sabbath is about? Do you see the point Jesus is making here? He's using this term, son of man, as a messianic term. And he's asking them to think about this. Who gets to determine what you do on the Sabbath? Obvious answer, God does. Well, guess what? I'm God. That's <laughs> what so Jesus is saying. I get to tell you what we do on the Sabbath. If David decided in this particular situation, it is okay for me and my men to eat of the bread of the presence, though the law does not allow us to do that. How much more so if I'm the one who spoke the world into existence, I'm the one that told Moses the fourth commandment, should I be able to say what my disciples can do? And we know that the Pharisees rejected what Jesus said. 
We know that they rejected Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. How do we know that? Because the very next story reveals how they reject Jesus and his claims. That brings us now to verses 6 through 11. And our second point of them rejecting the law of the Lord. Let me read verses 6 through 8. Now Luke tells us, on another Sabbath, we're not told was this the next Sabbath, weeks later, months later, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Now, don't don't miss the drama taking place in these three verses. This is dripping with drama. The Pharisees are watching Jesus like a hawk. We know that even back from the last story, because it doesn't say that the Pharisees were with the disciples. How did they know that his disciples picked grain? Because they probably had asked people, whatever Jesus and his disciples do, make sure you let us know. And here they are. Jesus is teaching. And they look around and they see a man with a withered hand. And they say, oh man, if Jesus sees him, we know what he's going to do. And they're just waiting. They're watching their time. Okay, he'll probably wrap up soon when he does. As soon as he sees that guy, we know what's going to happen. He's going to heal him. And when he does, we're going to get him. And yet, at the same time, guess what? As they're sitting there, listening, hearing him talk, thinking we're going to get him, Jesus, we're told, was aware of all that they were planning. (laughs) And so at some point, when he finishes... He says to the man with the withered hand, come here, stand right here. Stand right here. There is about to be a showdown. Jesus is now going to use this man like he did with a paralytic to make a point. And look what happens now in verses 8 and 9, or just verse 9. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? So once again, Jesus doesn't just see this guy and immediately heal him. Jesus, knowing what's going on with the Pharisees, just like he did with the paralytic, he says to the guy, hey, buddy, come here, stand right here. And before he does anything to heal him, he asks the Pharisees this question. Let's talk about the Sabbath. What's lawful to do? You're concerned with the law of God? Concerned with the fourth commandment? What is lawful to do? To do what is good on the Sabbath or to do harm? To save life or not to save it? Now, we're we're not to miss something that verse 6 told us we can move right past. And it says that the man with the withered hand had a 
withered right hand. If you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, you don't use your left hand. Therefore, this man is unable to do a lot of things in society because he is crippled with his right hand. That doesn't mean now he can just use his left hand. So Jesus sees this man in his knee. He's not just he's got arthritis and oh, I don't want you to be in pain. Jesus sees this guy like the paralytic. Because of your predicament, it changes your life. And Jesus says to the disciples, which is better, or to the Pharisees, which is better to do? Which is better to do? Which choice would be in keeping with the law of God? That's important we remember what the law of God is about. The law of God is not just a big list of rules. The law of God reflects the heart of God. And what Jesus is saying is, okay, here's a guy. He is unable to do normal life because he has a crippled right hand. What's better for me to do? I could wait till tomorrow. I mean, the Sabbath said if someone, your animal or a, a, a person was to like fall over in need of assistance or they're going to die, you could break the Sabbath rule. But their, their question to Jesus is basically, why not wait till Monday? I don't care if you heal them. Why do you have to do it now? Isn't that work? And Jesus is saying, but what's the Sabbath about? What is the law? About. And what Jesus is doing is he's exposing their hypocrisy. The answer that he asked them should have been an easy one, right? They should have said, Oh, Jesus, we're sorry. You're right. You should heal the man. But they don't. And look what Jesus does. Verse 10. And after looking around at them all, He said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. Notice what happened before Jesus heals the man. After he asked that question, you get the sense. It says Jesus looked at them all. Jesus asked that question and just took a few minutes to make eye contact with each one of them. You good with this? You good with me not healing him? You really think this is what the Sabbath is about? You really think this is what the law demands? He's confronting them on what they think is the right thing to do. And then we're told that Jesus asked the man, stretch out your hand. And Jesus doesn't say your hand is healed. He doesn't touch the man. As soon as the man's hand comes up, Now, by healing the man with the withered hand, a number of things are happening. First of all, Jesus demonstrates once again his authority. But he also demonstrated the lawful thing to do. This is what the law requires. I don't care, Pharisees, about your best practices manual. You want to know what God requires? Lift up your hand, brother. And he's healed. Jesus says, end of discussion. This is what God requires. But he does one more thing. By healing the man with the, wicked, with the withered hand, Jesus exposes the wicked heart of the Pharisees. 
Not only did they choose wrongly, but get this. We're told in verse 11, they were filled with fury over his actions. Look at verse 11 and how this story and this entire section ends. After Jesus does this, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, Lucas, he's a little nicer, a little bit more ambiguous when they say what, what they might do with Jesus. Matthew tells us the same story in chapter 12, verse 14, and he fills in the blank. It doesn't just say, you know, what are we going to do with him? You know, are we going to, you know, vote him out? Are we going to? No, it says at that point, this is the first time this happens in the gospel accounts. Matthew tells us, they say, how are we going to kill him? Jesus just healed this man. And all of these things they've seen, and they see Jesus do this and say, okay, we we can't have any more. We've seen enough, we've heard enough, and we're not going to put up with any more. And they said, from this point forward, we're, we're going to find a way to take him out. Now, let me, let, let's come back to the question we started with. Why? Why would the Pharisees be filled with fury towards Jesus? Why not, at this point, repent and believe? I know he's made some audacious claims, but he's been able to back them all up. Why not just trust him at this point? Why not just swallow your pride and realize that he has corrected you and you are wrong? What kept them from believing and repenting? Well, the answer may surprise you, but it is crucial that we understand for all of us why they did not. They were spiritually dead. Now, that might surprise you because the Pharisees look alive religiously. I mean, you can't find people in the Jewish culture alongside of the priests that are more religiously active, extremely devout in their beliefs. These men lived morally upright lives. But guess what? They are spiritually dead. I believe Luke chapter 6 verses 1 through 11 gives us an example of what theologians have called total depravity. What is total depravity? It's a theological term that speaks of everybody by our nature, our inability to come to God, to please God on our own due to the hardness of our heart and the futility of our minds due to sin. There was a Pharisee named Saul who once hated Jesus until God changed his heart. And in the book of Romans, he, he, he speaks of this idea of total depravity. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, listen how he's, what he says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And then listen to what he says about his own personal story a little bit later in chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then in chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Or starting in verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, which is the natural man, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Listen to this. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. That raises a huge question. If people by nature are spiritually dead and unable to come to God or to please God on their own, how can anyone be saved? Do you remember what Jesus told a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He said, there's only one way. You must be born again. Your law keeping won't get you there. You're going to have to be born of the Spirit. Or think about what John says later in his letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Notice the language. The English does a great job of capturing what's happening in the Greek. It says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It doesn't say they will be born of God. If you believe in Jesus, you will be born of God. No, the only way you can say Jesus is the Christ is because you have been born of God. Something supernatural has to take place. It must. I started reading just a few days ago a brand new little book from a guy by the name of Michael Reeves, who I love. He wrote a very timely book. It's called Evangelical Pharisees. And I want to read a little bit what he says in chapter 4. He has a chapter called Pharisees and Regeneration. And this is what he says. According to the Gospels, the Pharisees had a remarkable ability to look like what they were not. The crowds around them might have feared them, but they seemed convinced of their orthodoxy and piety. And yet, while the Pharisees looked like the preeminent people of Scripture, 
In reality, they trampled on Scripture and ignored its truth. While they appeared devout, they did not believe in their own need for redemption. They trusted in themselves more than God. To these faults, they added a third, which was both crucial and almost incomprehensible or imperceptible. They did not believe in their own need for a new birth. And he goes on. Outwardly, the Pharisees had no other gods before them. Inwardly, they trusted in themselves. Outwardly, they kept the Sabbath. Inwardly, they did not rest on the Lord. Outwardly, they were innocent of crimes against their neighbors. Inwardly, they treated those who were not within their sect with merciless lack of love. Their external behavior made them seem impressively righteous, but in their hearts, they were outright and thoroughgoing transgressors of the law. They neither loved the Lord their God with all their hearts, nor their neighbors as themselves, preferring the appearance over the substance of holiness. They camouflaged their sin instead of repenting in it of it. And then he says this. One of the main barometers of a pharisaical view of the heart is a pharisaical prioritizing of outward performance over inward reality and camouflage over repentance. What that performance or camouflage looks like may vary from tribe to tribe. For some, it's morality. For others, it's biblical knowledge. For still others, it's having the right emotions or experience. The new birth can be treated as nothing more than either a moral step up or a mental realization or a sentimental moment. In each case, the emphasis is on the externals. And that's where all the effort goes. This is how he closes. The result is a hollow people. Moral, but loveless. Learned, but vain. Emotional, but unaffected. Where such externalism thrives, there is pharisaical soil. So, how do we till up the pharisaical soil? How can we as a church emphasize the importance of the new birth and the necessity of faith and repentance which leads to genuine conversion of Christ? I want to mention just a few things we can do. First of all, it may sound simple, but we ask people their conversion stories. Do we just assume that because someone is here, they don't hate Jesus and they believe the Bible, that makes them converted? 
Have we heard one another's conversion stories? It's one of the things, it's important in our membership process, one of the things we do is someone wants to be a member of our church is we ask them, tell us your story. How you came to saving faith, when you repented of your sin. Now, everybody can't remember the date and the time. I'm one of those guys. I don't remember the exact day and the exact time. But listen, if the Bible says we were spiritually dead and we became spiritually alive, we can't say, I don't know if that's happened. We may not be say when it happened, but if you were spiritually dead and became spiritually alive, you should know at some point there was a difference and other people should say, oh yeah, he was spiritually dead. And now he's spiritually alive. Here's the second thing we must do. We must preach faith and repentance. We must call people to respond with faith and repentance. I remember a number of years ago being out with a group and we were, we were sharing the gospel with people. I remember sharing the gospel with this young man. And I was telling him, as I was walking him through the law, and he was aware how many of the laws of God he had broken, that he was a lawbreaker and deserving of God's judgment. Then I told him the good news about the Savior who came to redeem him and to save him. And it's not about his works. All he needed to do was repent and believe. When, when I was done, he just had the most perplexed look on his face. And I said, what you thinking about? What's going on? I can tell something's bothering you. Listen to this. He said, I've grown up in church all my life, and you're the first person that's told me that. Sadly, that is so many churches today. Here are 10 steps from the Bible to have a better friendship, a better marriage, a better this, a better that. Hey, listen, there's time for practicality. But listen, we've got to call people to faith and repentance and not assume that people are going to get that. And lastly, we must proclaim Jesus and Him crucified. Here, as in every story so far, we see the cross on Display. Look, look carefully. You can see it. Verse 11. Think about what's happening. The Pharisees leave there and say, How shall we kill him? And guess what? The very plan of the Pharisees to kill Jesus will fulfill God's plan to crucify him to atone for our sins. Oh, the glory of the cross. That God would use the greatest sin ever committed. Wouldn't you agree? The greatest sin ever committed is to accuse the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God with a crime, and to kill Him, though He's innocent. Wouldn't you agree? That is the greatest crime imaginable. And God used that crime to atone for our sins. That's the glory of the cross. So let me ask you this question. I cannot close out this message without asking you, have you been born again? If someone was to ask you over 
lunch that question, how would you answer? Yeah, I think Jesus is a good guy. Yeah, I believe he's God. Oh yeah, I, I, I'm sure I'm a sinner. I'm glad Jesus died to go to hell. Have you been born again? Have you come to a place in which you are aware of your sinfulness? Are you aware that you are a lawbreaker deserving of God's judgment? And are you aware not only are you a lawbreaker, your heart is so wicked, my heart is so wicked, that not only do I sin against the Lord, I try to fix it and atone for it instead of fleeing to Christ. Have you repented of your sin? And have you repented of your self-righteousness? And have you turned to Jesus and confessed how desperately sick and sinful you are? And have you trusted in Jesus alone to save you and to change you from the inside out? This morning, if you can't answer that question, then you need to know God brought you here so that that question is answered. You must be born again. I think in closing, I think of, did Luke, when he was writing this gospel, did he have his friend, the Apostle Paul, in mind? If you remember from the book of Acts, Paul and Luke traveled together. I wonder if there were times as Luke was writing his gospel, if he had his friend, the Apostle Paul, in mind. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. This is how I'm closing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Besides our hearts are hardened, the God of this world blinds our eyes so that when we look at Jesus, we don't see glory. But listen to what he says in verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you hear what Paul just did? He went back to the Genesis story and said, you want to think something was a miracle when God said, let there be light and there was light. You know what a greater miracle was? When you were blind to the glory of Christ and God said, let there be light. And the face of Jesus was glorious. I just read to you verse 4 and verse 6. And I intentionally did not read verse 5 till now. Because do you know how that happens? Do you know how we go from not seeing to seeing? Paul says in verse 5. What we proclaim 
is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So in between saying the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, and then in verse 6 he says, but God has shown in our hearts like in the same way he said, let there be light and there was light. Guess how it happened? We proclaim Jesus. That's why every Sunday we seek in our songs and in our sermons to proclaim Jesus. Because what we don't need is just moral improvement. We don't just need a list of doctrinal truths to better understand. We need Jesus. And when we see him, our eyes are opened. And as you leave here this morning, the only way your lost friends and family members and co-workers will see the glory of Jesus is when you and I proclaim Christ to them. And when they see him, that is the means God will use to do a supernatural work. So church, let us rest and rejoice in this truth of who Jesus is and let us look at him. And listen, there's a reason we began the way we did this morning. We began reciting Psalm 51 as a congregation because we want to be reminded none of us are here patting ourselves on the back like, well, I went to church this morning. Well, I don't live like my immoral neighbor. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. And every Sunday, we want to come in and strip off our self-righteous robes and walk in pleading the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good work you've done in our hearts. I pray now that you would do a supernatural work only you can do. I pray that if there are any here this morning who've not been born again, that right now, as the wind blows where it does, we do not know where it came from or where it's going. Lord, we know that the Spirit of God can all of a sudden move, as we sang a minute ago, in ways that will leave us speechless and amazed. So, Lord, if there are some here this morning who came in here, whatever the reason for coming this morning, but they came without new life and new birth. They came in spiritually dead. Lord, I pray you would awaken them and they would respond in faith and repentance. And Lord, may we be a people who continue to proclaim and to celebrate Jesus and him crucified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.